The rodeo is in town. How many of you are WNFR fans? Anybody out here? A couple, couple, two, both. Thank you, both. Thank you. Uh, it's, yeah, well, the rodeo's in town. And when I found out the rodeo was in town, I was reminded of uh, the story of this old cowboy and his worship experience. So if you would allow me just for a few minutes to humor you with this story, I'd like to share it with you. One Sunday morning, there was this old cowboy who entered a church just as services were to begin. And although the old man in his clothes were spotlessly clean, he wore a pair of jeans and a denim shirt and a pair of boots that were very worn and raggedy. And he also carried in his hand this worn-out old hat and an equally well-read Bible. But the church that he entered was in a very upscale and exclusive part of the city. And so it was the largest and most beautiful church this old cowboy had ever seen. The people of the congregation were all dressed with expensive clothes and very nice jewelry. And so as the cowboy took a seat, the people began to move away from him. Nobody ever greeted, spoke to, or welcomed this old cowboy because they were all appalled at his appearance and they didn't try to hide it. So as the old cowboy was leaving the church, the pastor approached him and, and asked the cowboy to do him a favor. He said, before you come back here again, have a talk with God and ask him what he thinks would be appropriate attire for worship in this church. So the cowboy assured the preacher that he would. The next Sunday, the old cowboy showed back up for services in the same old jeans, same old boot. Same old denim shirt and hat. And once again, he was completely shunned and ignored by this congregation. So the preacher said, I thought I asked you to speak to God before you come back to our church. The old cowboy said, I did. Well, did he tell you what the proper attire should be for worshiping in this church? Old cowboy said, well, sir. God told me he didn't have a clue what I should wear. He said he ain't never been in this church before. <laughs> so you see, Vance must have been pretty desperate to let the worship guy preach this weekend. So <laughs> y'all pray for me. <laughs> Would you open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. The Gospel of St. John, chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. Now, y'all can't be quiet on me this morning because I'm one of those preachers like Vance that likes to hear an occasional amen every now and again. Amen? amen. Yeah, y'all just feel free to go ahead and talk back to me. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to have y'all talking to each other every now and then. So I want y'all to get a little bit of practice in, all right? So I want you to look at the person next to you and I want you to say, good morning. Uh-huh. And, and, and I want you to look at somebody else and I want you, uh, let me think, let me think, let me think. I want you to just say, what's up? There you go. All right. Y'all sounding good. All right. Y'all keep that going and we'll be all right. Because truth is, if y'all don't talk back to me, I'll start talking back to myself because y'all know I'm too fried short of a Happy Meal. So I'm a little crazy. So y'all go ahead and feel free to give me some amens and talk back. Let's keep it warm up in the room. All right. We're going to read John 4, through 24 together out loud. Okay. So I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Bible. So if you don't have a Bible or if you don't have that version, direct your attention to the screen so we can read it all out out loud together. 
beginning in verse 22. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Worshiping in spirit and worshiping in truth are the two trademarks of true, authentic worshipers. And my prayer for you this morning is that these two trademarks will be registered and stamped on every page of your life and in every part of your heart. So we're going to go back and we're going to look at this story from the very beginning, back in verse 3, where Jesus began this encounter with the Samaritan woman to whom he was speaking. So if you would go back and look at verse 3, it says, He, meaning Jesus, left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now let me give you a little bit of history behind this. The Jews were uh, despised the Samaritans. The Samaritans, on the other hand, were very hostile to the Jews. So whenever Jews were traveling from Judea in the south up to Galilee in the north, they would do whatever was necessary to avoid passing through that area known as Samaria. Look at the map on the screen. The Jews would be traveling from Judea here in the south, in the southwest, and they would travel across the Jordan River. They would go into the area known as Perea. Then they would begin to head north up through Decapolis. Then they would cross the Jordan River again to head back west toward Galilee. And they did all of this just to avoid Samaria because of this controversy that was going on. But verse 4 says Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now, he had to pass through Samaria for two reasons. First of all, because the direct route from Judea up to Galilee, passing through Samaria, was actually three days shorter than if he took that alternate route. But secondly, because he had direct orders from headquarters. Jesus was on a divine assignment. He had business to take care of in Samaria. So Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Verse 5 says, So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is about 12 o'clock noon. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, this was awkward, not only because of the controversy that was going on between the Samaritans and the Jews, but it was awkward. Jesus speaking to this woman was was kind of odd because it was um, forbidden by law for a rabbi to speak with a woman in public. As a matter of fact, a rabbi couldn't even speak to his own wife or daughter or sister in the street. So it was pretty awkward for this woman. Imagine her response when he said, give me drink. Verse 9, we'll look at her response. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God, 
And who it is who says to you, give me a drink? You would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. Now, when I moved from New Jersey, one of the first things that I learned here in Las Vegas is that there's all kinds of water. <laughs> See, in Las Vegas, I don't know, maybe y'all ain't realize it. Maybe, you know, it's just me or something. But, but you know, Las Vegas has some hard water. It's, it's just weird. It it's kind of has this dry texture. And it's weird because, you know, when you think water, you think wet, not dry. And it's dry, but yet it's weird. So, anyway, I learned that there's all kinds of water. There's hard water. There's soft water. There's spring water. There's polluted water. There's clean water. There's all kinds of water. So, it was interesting to me that in this verse, when referencing to himself, Jesus introduces us to a new kind of water that he calls living water. Now, you've got to understand that water is the only substance on earth that is naturally present in three forms. Water can be a gas, it can be a solid, it can be a liquid. Look at the screen for a second. When water is a gas, the molecules are freely moving about. And in this phase, water is a vapor and it's invisible. When water becomes a solid, it's because the molecules have now locked into hexagonal crystals. And in this phase, they're no longer free to move about. And the water becomes visible like ice or snow. Water becomes a solid when those molecules are moving fast enough to break free from the hexagonal crystal structure, although they're still attached to each other. Water in this liquid phase is able to fill the shape of any container. Now, just like water is naturally present in three forms, God exists in three different persons. As God the Father, he's the invisible, intangible God. As God the Son, however, he manifested himself in solid form. You see, when the invisible God became visible, you could see him. Faith became sight. When the intangible God became tangible, you could touch him. But then on the day of Pentecost, God the Spirit came on the scene. And the Bible says the apostles were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Think of it like this. On the day of Pentecost, there was a change in the atmosphere. And these hexagonal crystals that were once in solid form, God the Son, started moving fast enough to break free from that crystal structure and took on a whole new different form, God the Spirit. And that happened because Acts 2 and 1 tells us that the people were all together in one place. Tell somebody next to you, they were all together. See, when all God's children get together, what a time, what a time, what a time. We sing that song because, you see, it's possible for all of us to be in one place at the same time, but yet still not be all together. It's called division. But at Pentecost, they were unified. They were like-minded. They were focused on God, worshiping with one voice. They were together in one accord. 
I guarantee you in that upper room at Pentecost, they didn't have Deacon Dreamy over here falling asleep. They didn't have Franny frown a lot over here watching the clock. Come on, don't act like you don't know who I'm talking about. They didn't have Usher Ionoi only here to steal your joy. You know what I'm, you know what I'm. Philip folded arms, I won't sing this worship song. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Come on, don't, don't play, you know, y'all know what I'm talking about. See, they weren't sitting on the premises. They were standing on the promises, waiting for the promise of the Father. For the Bible says, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together. Somebody say, all together. And we need that kind of change in this atmosphere today to melt ice-cold hearts. We need that kind of change in this atmosphere today to invoke the presence of God because we learn from the laws of matter and physics that with just a slight change in the atmosphere, just a slight change in the temperature, H2O solid becomes H2O liquid. Hard ice cubes become soft running water. And when all the people of God get together, worship together, all together, it changes the atmosphere. That's when God the Son manifests himself as God the Spirit. So the laws of matter no longer matter because the laws of the Spirit take over and makes everything a completely different matter. And just like H2O in liquid form fills the shape of its container, this living water fills the lives of willing vessels fully surrendered to him. And he doesn't just want to fill you. He wants to flow through you so he can overflow out of you. In verses 11 and 12, the Samaritan woman is basically saying this, and I paraphrase. No offense, mister. But you don't even have a bucket. And this well is way too deep. So where are you going to find this living water? Do you think you're better than Jacob, who dug this well himself and, and drank from it with his family? Please. <laughs> Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Verse 15, the woman said to him, well, mister, you need to give me some of this everlasting wonder water. Because you know, it just might change my life. Because I reckon if I never get thirsty, well, then I guess I'd never have to walk all the way to this old well. So just pour it on me. <laughs> now, by this time, Jesus had enough of her sarcastic remarks, so he inconspicuously digs right down to her very core. Look what he says in verse 16. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. Now, he didn't say that because he really wanted her to go. He said that because... He wanted to engage her in further conversation about her life. His intention was to build a relationship. The life of a Jesus follower is all about 
relationships. That was good. I heard that somewhere before. I can't quite. It's real. You better write that down. That was good. <laughs> he didn't tell her to go call your husband and come back here because he actually assumed that she was married or because he thought that she would really go. He simply desired to know her and to be known by her. He was building a relationship. Verse 17, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is your baby daddy. I mean, um, no, no, sorry. The one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Now, of course, by now, she was choking on every one of those sarcastic remarks. So now I want you to just push the pause button on that thought for a minute, and let me change gears for a few minutes. It's important here to note that from Genesis to Revelation, the number seven has always had special significance in Scripture. It has been traditionally recognized as a symbol of completion. Take, for example, Genesis 2 and 2. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day. Of course, this is the premise of the fourth commandment. Let's look at the fourth commandment on the screen. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it, You shall not do any work, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, to all of us on staff here at Hope, that fourth commandment is kind of hilarious. Because when we read it, it sounds a little bit more like this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Then the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it, you shall transform the gymnasium, organize volunteers, set up the chairs, assemble the stage, hang the lights, position the mics, check the sound system, park the cars, greet the guests, operate the media, check in the kids, care for the kids, teach the kids, try not to kill the kids, lead the people in worship, play the instruments, preach the word, pray the prayer, give the invitation, collect the offering, make the announcement, dismiss the service, give out the gifts, go home, crawl in the bed, and wake up Sunday morning to do it all over again twice. Now, I'm not complaining because I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. I would rather be no other place than Hope Baptist Church. But nevertheless, the scripture is saturated with the number seven. There were seven lambs required to conclude a peace treaty. There was the sevenfold sprinkling of blood to be cleansed. There were Samson's seven locks of consecration. There was Revelation, seven candlesticks, seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven thunders, seven plagues. And the list goes on and on and on. Unpause. Now go back and read verse 16 again. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. Now, I believe what Jesus was thinking but never actually said was, since you previously had five husbands, that makes baby daddy the sixth man in your life and places me right where I was always predestined to be at number seven. 
You see, I've come to complete you. I've come to fulfill you. I've come to renew and restore you. And all those other men left you defeated, depressed, and discouraged. But I've come to empower, elevate, and encourage. Everyone who drinks from Jacob's well will thirst again. But you, my dear, shall never thirst. For I am the living water. Somebody just say living water. Just in case your neighbor is sleeping, nudge him and tell him to wake up and take a drink. <laughs> Verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive, perceive that you are a prophet. Uh, you think? <laughs> Verse 20, our fathers worshiped in this mountain and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now, first of all, I've just got to take this opportunity to point out to you that this verse is solid proof that Jesus wasn't raised in the hood. (laughs) He might have been poor, but he didn't grow up in the project. See, y'all got to understand, I'm from Camden, New Jersey. And And where I come from, they were some fighting words. Now, I know you missed it, so let me help you out. If that was me she was talking to, I'd have got all up in my flesh and been like, you people. You, you, I got you, you people right here. What, you, you hear that cuz? You people. And thank heaven she wasn't talking to my wife, Pam, because if she was talking to my wife, Pam, Pam would have been like, oh, no, she didn't. What, no. No, you, you, what? (laughs) Thank God for the blood. Thank you for the blood, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for the, let's read verse 20 again. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now I know it, it, it looks like she's making a statement, but really she's asking a question. She's asking, where is the appropriate place to worship? Is it acceptable to God if we worship here at Mount Gerizim? Or do we need to go to Mount Moriah in Jerusalem to worship? Where is the appropriate place to worship? Now, I know this sounds like a silly question to you and I, but this controversy over where to worship was the primary issue that caused such strong hatred between the Samaritans and their Jewish relatives. You've got to understand, this dispute had been going on for over 300 years until Christ came on the scene and addressed it in this very conversation. Where is the acceptable place to worship? I know it sounds ridiculous, but the truth is, many people are still asking that same question today. Should I worship here? Should I worship there? Should I go to this church? Should I go to that church? Should I be a Baptist or a Methodist? Should I be Presbyterian? Should I be Pentecostal? Should I be like Pastor Mike Lauren and go to Mount Charleston? Or should I be like Pastor Vance and go to the Hilton? (laughs) That'll hit y'all later on, don't worry. I'm still trying to figure that one out, to tell you the truth. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem Will you worship the Father? You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Listen to me. True worship has nothing to do with a location, but it has everything to do with relation. 
Look at verse 21. Notice that Jesus called God Father. Neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Jesus was revealing his relationship with God. It's the object of our worship that makes the difference. And God is omnipresent. So worship has nothing to do with the location. It's all about the relationship. Then he said, we worship what we know. For to truly worship him, you've got to truly know him. Take a look at this quote by Clyde Cranford. A life focused on God, this is true worship. Thus God is pleased with our public worship only if the pursuit of holy living is part of our daily experience. The great preparation for corporate worship is private worship. We should be breathing and living in fellowship with the Holy Spirit moment by moment, all day, every day. I will, remember, I will bless the Lord when? At all times. I will bless the Lord when? Oh, I don't know if y'all tracking with me this morning. I will bless the Lord and his praise shall continually be in my mouth. Rejoice in the Lord when? Not, not just when, uh, should we be just rejoicing when, when we get the good doctor's report, the doctor say everything? Uh, rejoice in the Lord always, always. Not just when I feel good, not just when I feel like it, not just when things are going well. Not when I'm happy, not when I get my paycheck, not on Sunday mornings when I'm in church. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, and again I say, and again I say. You see, we ought to be meeting with him on Monday and talking with him on Tuesday, walking with him on Wednesday, just thrilled with him on Thursday, fascinated with him on Friday, so that by the time the weekend rolls around, we're not uh, dragging in here all weary, worn out, depressed, and disgusted, but we're entering his gates with thanksgiving, and we're entering his courts with praise because he is God. The truth is, If we can't worship in the supermarket, we can't worship in the sanctuary. If you can't worship in the kitchen, you can't worship in the choir. We can't truly worship anywhere until we first learn to worship everywhere. True worship has nothing to do with the location. It has everything to do with relation. The Bible says that my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I am a portable sanctuary. And if I'm worshiping in spirit and in truth, I take my sanctuary with me everywhere I go. Do you remember that song? Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. Pure and holy, tried and true, and with thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary for you. 
Look at this quote on the screen by James Gills. He said, worship means to practice the presence of God in everything we do, every time we do it. I want you to just tell somebody next to you, I want you to say this. I can't really worship anywhere until I learn to worship everywhere. Tell them that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. The Greek word in these verses that we're studying, the Greek word for worship is proskuneo. And proskuneo literally means to kiss. The image is like a dog licking his master's hand. It means to adore or to show reverence to, to lay prostrate on your face in a horizontal position. That's proskuneo. And our English word, worship, Simply means worth-ship, worth-ship, meaning he is worthy. Now, there are three truths about worship that I want to point out. First of all, worship is an attitude. It's an attitude with which we come before the Lord. It's an attitude of adoration. Lord, I adore you. Lord, I love you. Not just saying it, but really having that attitude in our heart, in our soul. It's an attitude of admiration. God, I want to be more like you. God, mold me, shape me, an attitude of admiration. Also, an attitude of appreciation. We've got to have an attitude of gratitude. Come before the Lord with thankfulness in our hearts. In spite of what's going on, in spite of the circumstance, we will bless the Lord at all times. We will rejoice in the Lord always. An attitude of being grateful to God for what he's given us and for where we are and who he's created us to be. Secondly, worship is an action. Praising God, giving him glory, bowing down before him, lifting our hands before him as we praise him. Sometimes we lift our hands like this in in, in an attitude of surrender. And sometimes we lift our hands like this to receive what God has for us. But whatever it is, whether it's bowing or laying before him or dancing before him, singing and celebrating, praising God, it's an action. Also serving in our daily work as we serve other people. We're not really serving the people, we're serving the Lord. When we do somebody a favor, when we think of somebody else and place them before ourselves, we're really worshiping. So it's not only an attitude, but it's also an action. Look at this quote by A.W. Tozer. I love this quote. It says, some people believe they are worshiping when they are making a lot of noise and chatter and racket. They can never worship God without noise and commotion. Religious noise and worship do not necessarily mean the same thing. On the other side, I want to warn you cultured, quiet, self-possessed, poised, sophisticated people, so sure of yourself that it embarrasses you if anybody says amen out loud in a church meeting. Throughout history, the people of God have always been a little bit noisy. I didn't say it. A.W. Tozer said it. Get mad at him. The third truth about worship is that worship is an affair. Worship is a romance with God. It is love responding to love. Now, there's a, a, a great misconception, I think, that has plagued the church in America and For a big part, it it, has plagued Hope Baptist Church in some ways. But there's this misconception that God 
is the prompter. We, meaning myself and our vocal team and our band and our choir, the folks on stage here, that we are the worshipers and that you are the audience. That's wrong. That's erroneous thinking. Incorrect. Couldn't be further from the truth. The reality is that we, Teddy, Pastor Vance, Pastor Mike, whoever's up here, Pastor Travis, the, the, the vocal team that's up here singing, the band that's playing, the, the choir that's up here, we are the prompters. You are the worshipers. And God is the audience. How many of you know we serve an audience of one? Now, I know some folk don't want to hear that. I hate to bust your bubble, hurt your feelings. That's not my intention. Believe me. But the truth is, sometimes we come to church with this attitude that it's all about me. Sing my song today. <laughs> Preach to me, preacher. Come on. I need... It's, it's, we make it about us. We sit there and we look, oh, I want to, oh, they sound so beautiful. Look at them. It's not about us. We are here to encourage you so that we together can join in one big choir. You know, what we're doing down here, this is just a rehearsal. When we get to heaven, we're going to really sing. And if y'all are part of the Hope Choir, y'all know y'all got to get it right in rehearsal. We got to get it right in rehearsal. Because this is just a rehearsal. When we get to heaven, we're going to really sing. A life of true worship is a life that experiences daily metamorphomai. That means metamorphosis. That's where we get that English word from. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, metamorphomai, or metamorphosis. We're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And this is what that looks like, that 2 Corinthians 3.18. looks like this. God shines his glory upon us. And his Shekinah is so powerful, it's so overwhelming, that we can't contain it. And the truth is, if we try, if we try to keep it to ourselves, it will literally consume us. So like mirrors, we reflect it. Picture this. He shines his glory on us. We glorify him. He blesses us. We bless him back. He lifts us up. We lift him up. From glory to glory to glory to glory. To glory, to glory, to glory, to glory, even as by the Spirit of God. Remember when Moses worshipped at Mount Sinai? He had to put a veil over his face just so he could return to the people back at the camp. So the truth is, when basking in the presence of God, true worshipers reflect the glory of God. Verse 23, but an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now I want you to take your pens out. And if your Bible translation says must 
worship as the NASB does, I want you to underline that word must. Or if your translation says will worship, I know some of them, some of the translation says uh, will worship, underline that word will. Must worship or will worship in spirit and truth. So now I want you to circle that word spirit after that. So must worship in spirit. Circle the word spirit. Then I want you to circle the word truth. I want you to remember every time you read that verse that worshiping in spirit and worshiping in truth are the two trademarks of true, authentic worshipers. So we're going to spend our last few moments together this morning trying to grasp what it really means to worship in spirit and to worship in truth. First of all, to worship in spirit. This is worship as led by the Holy Spirit within. If it's not directed by the Holy Spirit, it's not true worship. Secondly, worshiping in spirit involves the whole person. It's worshiping with the whole heart, whole body, soul, mind, strength, feelings, emotions. So often we want to leave out the feelings, that, oh, no, I don't want to get that attached. No, we kind of depart ourselves. No, it's bringing all of who we are, the whole person to God, our whole being. But now let me tell you what worship is not. Worship is not a high-energy display of emotionalism. Hear me out. It's not emotionalism. It's not led by the emotion. It's led by the spirit. But nor is it stiff and artificial with no semblance of life. This trademark, worshiping in spirit, represents an overwhelming passion of being in the presence of a holy God. So worship is why we were born. Worship is why we were born again. God is a spirit, and we have been born by the spirit. So we must worship in spirit because only the Holy Spirit knows how to worship God acceptably. Romans 12 says that I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, for this is your spiritual act of worship, or this is your reasonable service. Living sacrifice is not a corpse. Anything dead ought to be buried. But the problem with the living sacrifice is that it can crawl off the altar. So where are you today? Are you still on the altar? Let's look at what it means to worship in truth. Worshiping in truth, this refers to worship in harmony with God's fully revealed truth through his word. If it's not submitted to or submerged in truth, it's not true worship. Worship that is acceptable to God is based on knowing God and knowing the nature of God. This means to worship with the whole mind in accordance to God's word. Worshiping in truth does not involve controversies, ceremonies, rituals, Old Testament offerings. That's not worshiping in truth. I remember this story about this lady who was at a worship and prayer meeting who began to publicly pray that God would help her husband mend his wicked ways and correct his numerous sins. Then she proceeded in the prayer to describe his wicked ways and name his numerous sins while her husband was sitting right next to her. Though her words may have been true, they were not born of the Spirit. Because the first fruit of the Spirit is love. 
And 1 Corinthians 13 teaches us that love keeps no record of wrongs. And according to 1 Peter 4, 8, love covers a multitude of sins. So therefore, it's necessary to worship both in spirit and in truth. Look at this final quote on the screen by Henry and Richard Blackaby. The quality of our worship is not based on our activities, but on our character. Churches can mistakenly assume that the better the music, the more impressive the building, and the more eloquent the preaching, the more worshipful the experience will be. Genuine worship, however, originates from within our hearts. Today, we tend to look to external things to enhance our worship. The true quality of our worship, however, rests within us. If we have not allowed God to purify us first, our worship will be void of his presence. If we do not have a pure heart, we may give offerings, but they will be unacceptable to God. Attending a religious service will not automatically ensure an encounter with God. If you are not satisfied with the quality of your worship, don't be too quick to blame your environment. Look first to your own heart. My youngest daughter, Judea, turned six this Tuesday. And we had a, a birthday party for her, and we invited family and friends to come and to celebrate. And it was such a joy as we all gathered together to focus all our attention on that little girl for her special day. And we brought gifts, and we sang to her. And of course, we had some cake and ice cream. And that experience reminded me of a birthday party that I attended some time ago where I couldn't help but notice that there was someone there who didn't really want to be there, or so it seemed. They had a gift to bring, but they didn't really want to give it. They refused to sing and celebrate. And I think that they somewhat selfishly disregarded the fact that they were there for someone else and that it wasn't really supposed to be about them. And I sat there and I thought, why'd they even come to the party? Well, you know, every weekend at Hope Baptist Church, we have a party. And we invite family and friends to come and to celebrate. And it's such a joy as we gather together with family and friends and focus all our attention on God. We bring gifts. We sing to him. And instead of ice cream and cake, we feast on the word. But, you know, every weekend I can't help but notice there's just a few folk that don't really want to be here, or so it seems. You have gifts, but you don't want to use them. You refuse to sing and celebrate. And I think we sometimes disregard the fact that we're here for God. And it was never really supposed to be about us. So I often wonder, why even come to the party? I'm a prompter. You're the worshiper. God is the audience of one. But you can't really worship anywhere until you learn how to worship everywhere. Let Christ and Christ alone be the aim of your attitude, your action, in your affair. For God is spirit. 
those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth because these are the trademarks of true, authentic worshipers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you allow us to be in relationship with you as we bask in your presence you transform us that every moment of every day we have the opportunity to experience metamorphosis to be more like you and to reflect your glory so I pray that these two trademarks worshiping in spirit and worshiping in truth will be registered and stamped on every page of every life and in every part of every heart in this room. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. But on the third day, he arose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And now he's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. There may be somebody here today that has a God-shaped void in your heart and in your life. So often we think, before I come to Christ before I surrender my before I accept him into my heart, before I fully surrender, I got some things I need to get in order. Got to straighten some stuff out and then I'll come. Let me tell you, that's a lie from the devil because you can't do it. That's why we come to Christ. Because we need him to fix us. We just don't have the power. We don't have the strength. We don't have the, the ability in and of ourselves So I encourage you today. We have some pastors that are here in the front. I'm going to come down here to the front and we want to pray with you. If you know you need Jesus in your life, now is the acceptable time. Don't wait till tomorrow because tomorrow's not promised. Anything could happen when you walk out of these doors. Don't hold off tomorrow what you need today. Won't you let us pray with you? Maybe you say, well, Pastor Teddy, I already have Christ in my life. I'm I'm already saved. I know I'm a believer. But I'm just going through a rough time right now. And I know God has brought me through stuff before, but I don't know how I'm going to get through this one. Maybe it's healing in your body. Maybe it's some type of financial stress. Maybe it's just discord in your family. Whatever it is, won't you come let us pray with you? We have pastors, we have some lay leaders that are ready and willing. I want to just draw you back into the presence of God. So as Jordan and our team is singing a hymn, don't wait. 